0: Cold War, the threat of nuclear disaster became a normal aspect of everyday life. And schoolchildren across the country had duck and cover drills to prepare for the unthinkable. Here's a children's public service announcement that ran back in the 1950s.
1: Duck and cover. That's
2: the first thing to do. Duck and cover. And cover. First, you duck. Duck. And then and you cover. cover. You duck and duck. cover. Tight and duck cover. and cover under the table. Duck. It's a bomb, and duck cover. and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Duck <laughs> and cover.
0: But no one knew just how dangerously close we actually came to nuclear war. It started in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis when a U.S. destroyer dropped depth charges to try to force a Russian submarine to the surface. And the captain
2: of this particular submarine was um, convinced that U.S. forces were trying to sink his submarine. Uh, He kind of lost it and said, uh, we are not going to be the disgrace of the Soviet Navy. Uh, We will all die, but we are going to take them with
0: us. Load the nuclear torpedo. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, a close call with nuclear Armageddon. And later in the show, the impact of climate change on conflict. But first... Cold War tensions between the United States and Russia reached their peak during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. The origins of that crisis go back to 1957 when Russia launched Sputnik, the first ever satellite sent into space.
2: And the Americans uh, are terrified because if the Soviets can put a satellite into orbit— Instead of putting a satellite on the edge end of that rocket, they could put a nuclear weapon on the end of that rocket and uh, send it to uh, New York City, for example.
0: That's Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Martin Sherwin. Sherwin passed away in 2021, just a few months after we recorded this interview. He was a professor at George Mason University and the author of Gambling with Armageddon, nuclear roulette from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said that in response to Sputnik, President Eisenhower deployed nuclear missiles in Turkey, only about 130 miles from Russia. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev was furious. And um, about a
2: year and a half later, um, Fidel Castro succeeds in um, taking over Cuba. And... um, The Eisenhower administration is very suspicious of uh, Castro. They make no effort to work with him, compromise with him. Uh, The Eisenhower administration alienates Castro completely, throwing Castro into the arms of the Soviet Union.
0: The assault has begun on the dictatorship of
1: Fidel Castro. Cuban army pilots opened the first phase of organized revolt with bombing raids on three military bases. So in
0: 1961, new president John F. Kennedy authorized a CIA-trained army to invade Cuba and overthrow Castro's communist government. The ensuing disaster is known as the Bay of Pigs.
2: Uh, Castro's forces defeat the uh, CIA troops. And uh, at that point, uh, Castro and Khrushchev uh, become new best friends, and uh, Khrushchev has to figure out how to protect his new best friend. And what does he do? He looks around and says, uh, aha, Eisenhower sent these Jupiters to Turkey. Well, I'm gonna send the same kinds of missiles to Cuba, and once those missiles are set up and ready to fire, the United States wouldn't dare invade Cuba. So that's the uh, origins and framework of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis.
0: Tell me about your personal connection to the Cuban Missile Crisis. You were actually an intelligence officer in the Navy at that time.
2: Uh, Yes, um, it was October 1962. I was the um, air intelligence officer for a... a, uh, anti-submarine warfare patrol squadron, training squadron, actually. And um, because I was the intelligence officer, I held all the documents related to um, our secret war plans should uh, war break out. But sometime probably right around October 22nd, before President Kennedy gave his speech uh, announcing that Cuba was going to be blockaded because the Soviets had snuck nuclear weapons uh, into Cuba. I was um, told to uh, take those sealed war plans from my the inner sanctum of my safe and bring them to my skipper and ops officer. And, um, open them up, and uh, see what our squadron was going to do in the upcoming
0: crisis. Do you remember being frightened at some point during this whole unraveling of the missile crisis?
2: Very interesting that you asked that question, because one of the most embarrassing things for me as I thought back on the crisis, uh, after I was out of the Navy and... uh, in graduate school and thinking about it in a different way was that I wasn't the least bit nervous. I was um, totally into the responsibilities that I had and um, I didn't think
0: about uh, the consequences. In a nutshell, those consequences were what?
2: Well, I mean, there could have been uh, a nuclear war. And I remember during that entire week between October, the evening of October 22nd when Kennedy gave the speech and the end of the crisis on uh, Sunday morning, October 28th, I didn't call my parents once. They were on the East Coast. I was on the West Coast. Uh, They must have been terrified. I mean, these are not the... In those days, you didn't have cell phones, and uh, they didn't know how to get hold of me.
0: Uh, I was just doing what I had been trained to do. You write that the roots of the Cuban Missile Crisis go back to when Eisenhower, in the 1950s, began stockpiling nuclear weapons at an astounding rate. How many ultimately were stockpiled under the Eisenhower administration?
2: Well, when Eisenhower came into office in January 1953, he decided that nuclear weapons was his silver bullet for dealing with the Soviet Union. There were about 1,200 nuclear weapons of various sorts in the American arsenal— in January 1953, Eisenhower developed this strategy of massive retaliation. When he left office eight years later, there were 23,000 nuclear weapons in uh, the American arsenal. The, the buildup was astonishing. It was an attempt to um, scare the Soviet Union, into uh, believing that uh, the United States would uh, use nuclear weapons against it if it crossed the red line.
0: Why do you think Eisenhower was into massive retaliation? Why did he choose that option?
2: Uh, He prefers nukes to conventional forces. He decides that uh, the cost of buildup of conventional forces to deal with the Soviet Union in Europe would be much too expensive. And uh, since the United States, uh, we no longer had a monopoly of nuclear weapons, but we certainly had an advantage in terms of quantity. He reaches for the easy solution without really thinking about the consequences. By the end of his administration, second administration, Eisenhower has come to realize uh, what he has wrought with massive retaliation. And, uh, but of course, it's uh, now part of uh, the international system and we have the nuclear arms race that we came to live with and were lucky enough to escape from using, at least during the Cold War.
0: Does the U.S. still have a policy where massive retaliation is our idea of the deterrent? Uh,
2: No. Uh, uh, Policies changed during the Kennedy administration, which thought massive retaliation was idiotic in a world in which the Soviet Union could, you know, respond in kind. But the United States still does have what is called a first-use policy, meaning that um, the United States will initiate the use of nuclear weapons in a particular kind of crisis.
0: President Kennedy ultimately did something very secret that, you write, actually made him a hero, or one of the several heroes of ending this catastrophic moment.
2: Uh, Yes. Well, one of the most important things about the Cuban Missile Crisis from a historical point of view is that President Kennedy had had a secret tape recording system put into the Oval Office and uh, the Cabinet Room. And so each time he met with his advisors, uh, he secretly switched on the tape recording system. So we have this absolutely unique historical documentation in the most serious crisis in world history. And what is so amazing about it is that at the very beginning on the first meeting of uh, the morning of October 16th, a couple of hours after he was informed about the crisis, Kennedy agrees with his advisors and with the Joint Chiefs of Staff that he is going to have to bomb or invade Cuba to get rid of those missiles. Well, just that afternoon, by luck, by chance, Adlai Stevenson, the American ambassador to the United Nations, has a a luncheon appointment with the president that was made weeks before. And uh, after lunch, uh, Kennedy takes Stevenson up to the family quarters, uh, says that we're gonna have to bomb and invade Cuba. And Stevenson, who thinks about international relations rather differently than either Eisenhower, Truman, or even Kennedy, says, whoa, (laughs) No way. This is not a good idea at all. This can be solved diplomatically. And uh, Stevenson, in the course of their conversation, in effect lays out the blueprint that Kennedy ultimately follows for ending the crisis uh, peacefully. And over the course of that first week when Kennedy and his advisors are meeting secretly, we see Kennedy slowly move away from the Joint Chiefs and um, the position of most of his advisors to bomb and invade Cuba and to look for an alternative. And the alternative he settles on is to blockade Cuba. But in the end, in the last day or two, the most interesting thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis is that both Kennedy and Khrushchev are, in effect, working together to end that crisis peacefully. And in many ways, they are working together against their advisors. Both of them become terrified that a nuclear war will accidentally occur without their authorization.
0: You've also pointed out that there were a couple of points along the way where we almost had the nuclear holocaust just because one side or the other nearly made a fatal flaw. In one instance, it was a Soviet sub-captain that almost fired a nuclear weapon on a U.S. carrier.
2: Uh, that's correct. Um... There were four Soviet submarines that had been sent to Cuba, and uh, they were being uh, tracked and forced to the surface by the anti-submarine warfare uh, forces. So um, you know they were dropping um, depth charges to not to kill the submarine, but they were charges that were meant to force them to the surface. And the captain of this particular submarine, B-59, was um, convinced that war had begun, that the ASW US forces were trying to sink his submarine. And each of those submarines had a nuclear-tipped torpedo. The torpedo had uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 tons of TNT. That's the same size explosive that uh, destroyed Hiroshima. So uh, uh, he kind of lost it and said, uh, we are not gonna be the disgrace of the Soviet Navy. We will all die, but we are gonna take them with us, load the nuclear torpedo. And it was almost fired And the firing was prevented by another uh, Soviet captain uh, who just by chance, by luck, had been assigned to um, that submarine to be transported to Cuba. He was a member of the uh, fleet staff. And uh, he managed to prevent that torpedo from being fired. So we came within, you know, a couple of minutes of... uh, an American aircraft carrier being sunk by a nuclear torpedo, three or 4,000 uh, men on that aircraft carrier killed. And uh, does anybody think that the American president would not have to have responded in some equivalent way, uh, beginning an escalation uh, situation, which could have led to a nuclear war?
0: are two very powerful conclusions you amply make in your book. And one is that nuclear weapons aren't worth it, that actually the benefits do not outweigh the things that make them a problem. And the other thing that's very powerful is you say luck is always a factor in preventing actual annihilation.
2: Uh, that's correct. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm not the only one who says this you know, no no less uh, important people than uh, former Secretary of State George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, and um, Secretary of Defense uh, Perry. You know, back in way back in two thousand and I think it was six or seven wrote a famous letter uh, op ed to the uh, Wall Street Journal, essentially saying that nuclear weapons were the greatest threat to American security, and that we should get rid of them. How to get rid of them is the greatest conundrum that we that we face. I frankly think it 's even more dangerous. Uh, than, you know, the threat to to climate. So um, we need to face up to this. There's no obvious solution, but like every other complicated issue, you've got to start taking it seriously and begin to try to figure out how to resolve the problem.
0: Martin Sherwin died in October 2021. He was a history professor at George Mason University and the author of Gambling with Armageddon, Nuclear Roulette from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis. His Pulitzer Prize-winning book, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, was the inspiration for the new Christopher Nolan film, Oppenheimer. Coming up next, the connection between climate and conflict. The warmest eight years on record have all been since 2015. And this summer, states in the southwest are facing an unprecedented heat dome. Philip Ressler has studied the impact of the rising temperatures on conflict zones around the world. And he says within 100 years, climate change will become one of the main drivers of large-scale political violence. Philip Ressler is the Margaret Hamilton Associate Professor of Government and the director of the Africa Research Center at the Global Research Institute at William & Mary. Phil, not too long ago, you took part in an effort to determine the impact of climate change in conflict zones. Tell me about that process. When was it, and why was it commissioned?
1: So back in 2018, I was invited uh, to be part of this research program that was led by Dr. Catherine Mock, then at Stanford University, There have been a number of studies finding that climate change caused conflict, and others that disputed that and said the link was inconclusive. Catherine thought that maybe one way, a different way to study this problem is to bring together these experts, some who find a positive connection and some who find no connection, and bring them together in dialogue to review all of the evidence and to try to come to a consensus. So you know, what do we know about the effect of climate change? Increasing temperature, variable weather patterns on conflict, especially conflict between the government and its citizens organized in rebellion. This was the motivation to bring a balanced, diverse set of scholars to review the existing literature and provide estimates of the effect of climate change on conflict to date, and then the relationship over the next century.
0: Did you learn about Earth's warming being a factor in conflict in such a way that it changed your opinion in any way?
1: Yes. To date, I had focused more on what we call strategic factors leading to civil war, whereas I was focused on kind of the decision-making of elites and rulers. Let's now think about... Those in the ranks and file of these armed rebellions or in militaries, militias, why do they join a rebellion and what role does climate change play?
0: Did you start to look at conflicts that you know so well that you've studied for years as being more influenced by environmental factors as opposed to the standard things like poverty, motivations of a leader? Or bad governance?
1: Yes. One in particular is the civil war in Sudan in the region of Darfur. So I'd spent two years in Sudan trying to understand the causes of the Darfur Civil War. The Darfur Civil War, which broke out in 2003, was often mentioned as the first kind of climate change conflict because a key element of the conflict was violence between pastoralists you know, so those who herd camels and cattle, and farmers. And one of the arguments was drought and you know kind of drying environments are changing the mobility and the movement patterns of pastoralists, leading them to encroach kind of more extensively on farming land or changing the timing such that it came too early and destroyed crops. And so many pointed to this as kind of a cause of the Darfur Civil War. And there's no doubt this played a role, and I was familiar with this role, but in my kind of research, what we saw was the strategies that the ruler in power, Omar al-Bashir, strategies that he chose to kind of protect his hold on power actually increased the risk of civil war and degraded, his capabilities to keep the peace in the Darfur region so it really was the interaction between these factors that made it so explosive and that was kind of one of the key conclusions of our study is we we can't focus on any one factor we have to think of the combination of factors and we ranked climate change as kind of the 10th most important factor but going forward, we see a, a rising risk of climate one conflict.
0: It's hard to think of how rising temperatures lead to actual conflicts. What sorts of conflict and what sorts of climate change can lead to war?
1: When we think about climate change, we think about rising temperatures, so warming temperature, warming Earth, and we think about more erratic weather patterns. The most consistent effect has been rising temperature linked to increased violence. Rising temperature reduces agricultural yields. In a weak state or a a low-income state, and there is a militia, and part of this militia are using violence as a way to sustain a livelihood, you might consider, well, I, I would farm but I'm making no living farming because of the temperatures hurting my agricultural yield, I might now consider joining this militia or if members of the militia try to encourage me to join. Whereas the past, I said, no way, I'm not going to be part of this violent organization. You now kind of consider it. There are also physiological effects. Warmer temperatures make us irritable. They make us more aggressive. And there is lots of research showing increased violence when we have warmer temperatures. So warmer temperatures and climate change affect us in so many different ways.
0: What do you think is the main reason we think there will be increased conflict if we stay on track to see our temperatures rise by about four degrees?
1: Yeah, so we did estimate that in the four degrees Celsius warming scenario, which is, unfortunately, we're on pace for over the next hundred years, we will see a five-fold increase in conflict risk of climate having a substantial impact on large-scale political violence, which is quite high and, and, and concerning. And perhaps even most worrying is it affects our global capacity to address conflict. We have seen a steady decline in civil war over the last 50 years. And part of the reason is because the international community has come together to invest in peacekeeping through the United Nations. We have gotten better at helping to end civil war and build more capable states. What's worrying about climate change is it, it affects the entire globe and affects us internationally. It'll sap our global capacity to address global problems. And that's one of the paradoxes of climate change is it requires a global solution, but it also makes it harder for global cooperation, right? If, if the United States is dealing with, you know, heat wave in the Northwest, hurricanes in Florida, drought, you know, in other parts of the country. And we have to put resources to addressing climate change in America. Are we going to be investing in UN peacekeeping? You know, there's going to be a cost, a trade-off we face. And countries around the world are going to face those trade-offs so when we start to look at the four degree scenario, we do start to think about how does this affect global cooperation, states turning more inward, and then not just you know, makes it harder to address civil wars, but may even increase international competition and conflict. And so the systems we've built over the last you know, 70 years since the end of World War II to address global problems become at risk as well.
0: Phil, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Philip Rustler is the Margaret Hamilton Associate Professor of Government and Director of the Africa Research Center at the Global Research Institute at William and Mary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. China has burst onto the scene as one of the world's most powerful countries, and the U.S. has taken notice. President Biden has vowed to push back against China's rapidly growing influence.
2: I see stiff competition with China. China has an overall goal, and I don't criticize them for the goal, but they have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world. The wealthiest country in the world and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch.
0: My next guest is Patrick Ramey. He's an international studies and political science professor at Virginia Military Institute. He says as competition heats up between America and China, America should avoid treating China as an enemy. Patrick, what did you notice during the recent G7 gathering in Europe? where the new Biden administration first showed its real colors as to what its posture is going to be vis-a-vis China?
3: Well, I think what we saw was a return to the foreign policy prior to the Trump administration, where it was more of a Cold War thing, uh, a group of allies, and we're concerned about a particular threat. And it was the Soviet Union then, and now it's China today. But also by treating them like an enemy, you can cause them to act like an enemy. If you treat them like an adversary, they're going to be aggressive. They're going to be anti American. They're going to do things you don't want them to do.
0: What do you think we should be shooting for? What should our posture with China be?
3: Well, I think um, you have to take a strong stance against China on issues of things like human rights. What they're doing in western China with the Uyghur population is problematic, and um, we have enough economic influence in China, hopefully, to affect some change or something like what they're doing in Hong Kong, right, where they're oppressing civil liberties. These are these are serious problems that we need to take seriously. But the best way to try to solve those problems is probably not to antagonize the Chinese government who's guilty of, of doing these things. Um, you're just going to make them double down. So if there are ways, not just, you know, sticks, punishments, but also carrots and incentives that we can collaborate with China that might get them to stop doing certain things, but also make them uh, less likely to think of us as a threat, Then we hit this happy medium. We can can work together with China and we can also reduce some of these problems uh, that China is committing.
0: Many political observers believe we're emerging from the pandemic with more certainty than ever that China will soon surpass the U.S. in economic and military power. Do you share that view?
3: Uh, No, I don't. I think that they will continue to be more powerful I think they can present some real problems for the United States, but I don't think that they are going to surpass us and overtake us as the next global power. I also don't think they have a lot of upside economically um, because their population is aging. They're still somewhat poor, uh, just in terms of the average Chinese citizen. And the economic growth that they have had has slowed down tremendously.
0: Pretend for a moment that I am asking you about China, and you are the leader, the administration of China, looking out at the U.S. From China's perspective, what is it seeing in the U.S. in terms of threat and um, potential?
3: Well, I think the Chinese look at the United States and see a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the American foreign policy community. And a lot of that material is saying, hey, China is the bad guy. The United States needs to take on China. And it's hard to think anything other than, hey, the United States is going to threaten China when you hear that rhetoric, because it's very explicit. Um, There are some corners where they say that, that a conflict between China and the United States is inevitable right? So if your adversary is saying that your conflict with you is inevitable, well, then you're going to get ready for a conflict because you think that, you know, this other actor is going to attack. So we create, in a lot of ways, a self-fulfilling prophecy that this conflict is going to occur by talking about all the time and acting as if it's inevitable.
0: You've said that we're actually focusing too much on China and it's dangerous to keep your eye off the, um, the growing powers in other regions.
3: Yeah, so we're, we're the most powerful state in the world today. And we can look at our predecessor, the British Empire, who was the last dominant, unquestioned superpower. And they, at the time, were obsessed beginning back in the mid-19th century and, and earlier, obsessed with the Russians. They thought the Russians were their next big competitor, the Russians were going to take over the world uh, because they had this large population, uh, lots of resources, all of this. And so British foreign policy, going back to the Anglo-Afghan wars and the Crimean war in the mid-19th century, is focused on trying to stop Russia, that Russia is an inevitable threat, and we've got to stop them, which sounds very, very similar to American foreign policy today. And as a result, Britain made a variety of mistakes, charge of the light brigade, the, the decimation of British forces in Afghanistan, all these things the British Empire did, that they didn't have to do, they didn't really stop Russia. But more importantly, they overlooked the actual threats. They overlooked, in particular, the Germans. And even on the eve of the Second World War, the British government was looking at Germany, Hitler's Germany, as a potential bulwark, a potential ally that they could use to stop Russia. So this, this myth that Russia was going to take over the world that began in the 19th century was persistent. It went through the First World War, and it even continued until the onset of World War II. And we might be doing that in a similar way today with China, where we're myopically focused on just one country – and ignoring other potential challengers. Help me picture what you see the U.S. doing
0: over the next, you know, five to ten years. Are we slowly moving in a certain direction? Or are we zigzagging all over the place when it comes <laughs> to, you know, where we're going with our foreign policy?
3: Yeah, I think we we do run danger of zigzagging all over the place because one of the constants after the Cold War and during the Cold War Was that regardless of whether the president was Republican or Democrat, the foreign policy outlook was consistent. It may not have been the best foreign policy, but it was consistent regardless of administration. And with the new partisanship that we have in the United States with the Trump administration, and now we have the Biden administration, uh, we could experience a bit of a zigzag. But what I'd like to see is some consistency, and maybe not a consistency that goes back to the the Bush, Obama, or Cold War foreign policies, but some consistency with thinking ahead for America's uh, retirement, thinking ahead for what the world will look like when the United States is no longer the most powerful country in the world, and how we want that transition to take place.
0: So what would be some good thinking actions we might take as we anticipate our retirement?
3: Yeah, it, it's, it's you're not going away. It's like the British. The British are still there, but it's certainly not what it was in the 19th century. And we're going to get to that point eventually. I can't say exactly when, but it will happen. And so I think there are some lessons to be learned in you go back a couple hundred years to our founding and the, the beginnings of American foreign policy and there's you know Washington's farewell address it talks about peace and commerce and friendship and i think that there's some there's some lessons there to think about for what our 21st century retirement planning looks like um where you want to protect your interests you want to protect american economics american prosperity american security and to do that you look for partners and so far the biden administration has been doing a lot of that you're looking for partners and persuading people that your interests are also their interests so rather than antagonize potential threats you bring them in you bring them into the fold you say hey look You know, the stability of the South China Sea is something we both want. How can we prevent a destabilization? How can we prevent conflict? And if you make these challengers satisfied with the world as it is, then you're going to have a much happier decline, so to speak, into your retirement. Because the way the world works that we as the United States have made is not going to change. It's going to continue to benefit us. It's going to continue to value democracy, human rights, and economic prosperity, if you can persuade these guys that, hey, this is in your interests as much as it is ours.
0: Patrick Ramey is an international studies and political science professor at Virginia Military Institute. He's the author of Power, Space, and Time, an empirical introduction to international relations. Coming up next, America's alliances, are they worth it or not? In his farewell address in 1796, George Washington warned against the dangers of alliances. Thomas Jefferson described America's foreign policy this way, as peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Jason Davidson is a political science professor at the University of Mary Washington and the author of Entangling Alliances, 1778 to the Present. He says despite the misgivings of the founding fathers, America has consistently relied on alliances throughout its history. Jason, your book has been called a corrective to assumptions about U.S. foreign policy when it comes to foreign entanglements. What's the conventional wisdom that you're challenging about our history of alliances?
4: So the first part of the conventional wisdom that I'm interested in challenging is the idea that the United States has really only had allies since 1949, some interpretations would say since World War II, And then slightly more sophisticated versions would say that, yes, we had this alliance with France in 1778. But after that, the first alliance was in the post-World War II period. And the second part of the conventional wisdom that I'm interested in challenging is the idea that the reason why the United States has had the alliance record that it's had is because we had a position of moral purity relative to the sort of seedy world of European diplomacy. And that we were better than all that and therefore stood apart from alliances that the Europeans had.
0: Where did that perception that we stood alone and had moral purity, where did that originate?
4: There are important moments in American history that have contributed to this view. George Washington's farewell address, in which he warned about some of the dangers of alliances, I think he was very concerned at the time about the potential influence that European great powers could have over the United States if we had peacetime alliances with those powers, that they would use that to influence internal American affairs. I think he better than anyone understood that distinction between when the United States was as as weak as it was, needing an alliance to survive, which is why it had the alliance with France starting in 1778. But then after independence, when that necessity of survival was no longer there, that an alliance could ostensibly be used against the United States by that stronger country. He had a very sophisticated understanding of power politics and diplomacy.
0: You have a theory about how the need for alliances with any nation, let alone America, changes as the nation moves into a more powerful position. And your theory says, we started out small, we became the world's only superpower, and along the way, the nature of our alliances had to switch.
4: That's correct, yes. The next stage in power is being a regional power. For a regional power, one has kind of local regional interests. In the United States' case, that meant interests in regional commerce. Uh, It meant things like its naval security. One of the best examples is one that not many would know about, which is the 1842 Tyler Doctrine. So this is during the presidency of John Tyler, and the United States had developed pretty extensive maritime commerce in the Pacific with countries in East Asia, well, that commerce passed through the island of Hawaii that was then its own independent kingdom. And Hawaii, there was a perception both by the Hawaiians and by American policymakers that Hawaii would be under threat from both the British and the French. The British had just colonized New Zealand and a French uh, naval commander had engaged in you know, pretty fierce gunboat diplomacy in Hawaii in 1839. So the Hawaiian king, Kamehameha, sent a delegation to Washington asking for protection. And President Tyler ultimately agreed. And, and one really important reason that he stressed was that 80% of the naval traffic through Hawaii at the time was American ships.
0: When did we emerge into the next form of power, not a regional power, but when did we start to see ourselves and be seen as one of the great
4: powers? So that's about 100 years later. So this is the period leading up to the First World War. And the United States initially had tremendous economic power Um, but then ultimately mobilized that economic power into military power in the early part of the 20th century. So the United States, as it became a great power, what it realized is that threats that would emerge on the other side of the world, in this case in Europe, that it could at least initially let others take care of those threats. However, uh, as the German threat emerged, it ultimately became clear to uh, President Woodrow Wilson and his advisors that Germany's threat to the United States was so great that it had to enter into a military coalition along with the other allied or entente powers to combat Germany.
0: How did we morph from that period, which is one of the great powers, into one of two superpowers? And how did that affect how we formed alliances and needed to form alliances.
4: Right. So World War II leaves the United States and the Soviet Union as the two remaining superpowers and changes the story because in this multipolar world, this world with many great powers, you can let somebody else take care of problems for you. In a bipolar world, You're facing this other superpower, which is your adversary, and there is nobody else to pick up the slack. There is nobody else to pass the buck to. Well, there there really are two reasons why you need allies in this bipolar world, this world of two superpowers. Number one, because those allies have economic capabilities that the other side could use for their advantage. So you want to preclude the other side from getting their, their riches, their wealth. And second of all, some countries in the world have really important geostrategic locations. And so the alliances that you might think to yourself, well, gee, why would the United States need an alliance with South Korea, for example, not economically wealthy as of the 1950s, but did have a very important location in that Pacific island chain, along with Japan, along with Taiwan, uh, along with the Philippines all of them were important from a geostrategic perspective.
0: You know, it's interesting. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the U.S. emerged as the solo superpower. And again, the need for alliances shifted. It was a confusing period. Like, you know, who's the adversary? Do we really need to be spending so much on defense and the world's defense? Do you think that that had a lot to do with the emergence of the Trump administration and the America First policy, where Donald Trump set about to dissolve what he saw as these pricey alliances with the NATO countries.
4: Well, so if we talk about the post-Cold War period and alliances, the first thing to note is that the purpose of alliances changes pretty dramatically. Because the United States was so powerful as of 1991 forward, it certainly didn't face any existential threats like it had prior. So what the United States faced in that period was a series of non-existential threats. So first rogue states that might develop weapons of mass destruction, then terrorism after the 9-11 attacks. And those kinds of threats essentially meant that the United States needed to engage in a series of military operations throughout the world So the United States had allies and sought new allies, both to engage in burden sharing, that is to help with these by by sending troops to engage in peace operations, for example, in Bosnia and Kosovo, but also looked for allies that would help facilitate these operations through uh, military bases, overflight rights, those sorts of things that, that would uh, allow the United States or make it easier for the United States to engage in those operations.
0: So, so how does this lead to the Trump administration and the America First policy?
4: Donald Trump, based on everything that I understand about him, did not fully appreciate how the logic had changed. He had an idea of alliances that appears to have been just based on allies' contributions to things like defense spending and really nothing else. But the other contributions that I mentioned, so for example, allied contributions to U.S. operations in Afghanistan or allied contributions to peace operations in Bosnia or Kosovo, those were not the kinds of things that he was interested in. So he failed to understand those benefits that allies provided. So looking at allies through the lens of the Cold War, you know, if if one only looked at them from that perspective, it would be reasonable to be a little bit more skeptical about their value.
0: So looking at an America first policy, which he was putting forth, what is the harm if we lose these old alliances when we're not under existential threat? That's the core debate, right? How much do they cost us versus what do we gain?
4: Right. So the real benefit is the additional burden sharing in military operations that the United States engages in. And in addition, I would say that allies provide diplomatic and political support for U.S. positions in important international fora. So the fact that the United States has allies with the 29 other member countries of of the North Atlantic Treaty, for example, means that it generally can command those allies' support in the United Nations or other fora. Now on the cost side, really, I mean, to me, the most significant cost that critics will point out is the potential risk that allies could pull the United States into some sort of a conflict that it has no interest in or no no beef with. And of all the allies that the United States currently has, probably the only group that you could point to that, that are really legitimately risky would be the Baltic states and the potential that Russia could get involved. Russia could provoke a conflict with them and then the United States would have to defend them. What about um, Taiwan? Well, so <laughs> Taiwan is not a an ally of the United States at the moment, from the perspective of uh, a, an actual commitment to defend Taiwan, that's being debated, um, and it is an interesting question as to both whether the Biden administration will or should make that commitment to Taiwan. We had a commitment to Taiwan in the night, starting in the 1950s, that then we we did away with when we recognized uh, mainland China, and since then, the United States has provided. Uh, military assistance to Taiwan, but has not made a commitment to defend it.
0: Jason Davidson is a political science and international affairs professor at the University of Mary Washington. He's also the author of Entangling Alliances, 1778 to the Present, With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.